Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Yeah, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you here. My name is Bryant Martin. I'm from State College. Uh, always, always considered a privilege to meet with brothers from all over, all over the world, um, really, and uh, brothers and sisters from all over the world. So yeah, it's an honor to uh, to be gathered as the kingdom of God on earth, uh, as brothers and sisters, under the banner of King Jesus this morning. Uh, this this topic that we'll be talking about today is, is very uh, something I care deeply about. Um, it's a live issue, I believe, uh, very much so. It's as we relate to the empire, as we re- relate to our government, and for probably a majority of us, that's the United States. And what does that look like? And I think it's uh, it really, it puts, um, it's, uh, it's the rubber on the, on the road. It's, it, it's, it, it affects us every day. And it's actually a way that we can interface with Christians and others around us, uh, non-Christians and help them to see, um, uh, spiritual reality, I believe. So I'm very excited about this talk here this morning. Um, but the, the purpose uh, of strength to strength, uh, is to advance Jesus kingdom by tackling, uh, thought provoking topics, by stimulating candid discussions, and by sharing faith-building uh, testimonies. And um, so uh, we've, had, we've had numerous questions come in here from people here that, that, are, that care about this topic, that have questions. So we're looking forward to tearing into this. Uh, Matthew Miliani from, from Boston uh, is, is joining us. Uh, Matthew, uh, yeah, welcome, welcome here. Uh, do you have, what is it, 11 children, 12 children? 12. You have 12, 12 children. 12 children and uh, a grandson, I believe, and the second one on the way. That's right. So, yeah, good, good to have you. Good to have thank, you. Thank you for the invite. I'm glad to be here. It's a, it's a, it is a vitally important subject that I, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, wonderful. Maybe that's the reason we pulled you on here, maybe. <laughs> All right. And then also Brother Kevin Breckbill uh, from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, is going to be joining us here uh, as well to tackle this this topic. Um, I'm also I, I pulled in another brother from the admin team here to help um, lob questions and and wrestle with this topic. Uh, help help um, ask those questions maybe to try to bring clarity uh, to this topic as you guys are talking. You know, it, well, sometimes when we talk about these subjects, we do it a lot and we we kind of maybe talk higher um, or faster or broader than than we should, and so. Um, both myself and, and Wendell, Wendell Martin, he's from State College here as well. Um, Lord willing, moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to start an urban church plant there in the next couple of months. Um, if he can find a house, uh, he's been missing houses left and right, which isn't a new story for anybody. We know that wants to buy a house there. This is a difficult time. And um, so, yeah, he's been joining us here. He cares deeply about this topic as well and can help us kind of wrestle, wrestle with this. So good to have you here, Wendell. Um, so as we think about this topic, uh, I thought of a verse here this morning. I'm just going to read it. Uh, actually, two or three verses here out of Philippians 3. Um, and it goes like this. <clears throat> For I often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And is this um, a question I want to ask us here as we, as, we, as we launch out is, is this a question, is this topic, does it even matter? Or are we just getting nitty gritty? Are we just uh, majoring on some kind of minor issue uh, is, is a question that maybe some of us are grappling with, or maybe some, of, some that are here think. Um, these Anabaptists, these kingdom Christians, uh, hey, 4th of July, you know, forget it. It's, it's a great time to remember your country. It's not going to affect us. Uh, there's no long-term consequences with these, with these things. Uh, voting, hey, that we can change the world by, you know, in some small way of voting, get out and vote. You know, do these, are, are these questions that we should even be grappling with? Um, are we majoring on minor things is, is a question I'd like to have. And um, so, but before we get started, um, I want to ask Brother Jundi. Um, Jundi often is on this call. He spoke quite a bit as well on here. So it was a blessing to have him with us. And um, he'll be someone too who could who could um, just talk all morning about the subject, I'm sure. But the challenge is we, we have a limited time. And so, but Brother John, if you could just lead us in prayer here at the beginning, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump into this, this topic. Go ahead, Brother John. Father, we thank you this morning that you have elected us in Christ to be part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that we uh, can be part of a kingdom that we know is permanent and uh, through all the vicissitudes of life will finally triumph. Lord, that is a great blessing and a great strength. Help us to understand this morning through Brother Matthew and Brother Kevin how we can relate to this world in a way that uh, entices them or attracts them into this kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Um, so I'm gonna, we're going to start this time with a question that kind of runs along the line of the question that is asked for prayer here. And it goes like this. This came in last evening from a brother. He said, what do you see as a foremost hindrance to someone's Christianity not embracing the two kingdom view and being given to too much nationalism? What is a foremost hindrance? And then he goes on. He said, someone did an adaption once of our favorite American song. I am proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I will never forget the, man, the men who died who gave this right to me. I am humbled to know I'm a Christian. I'm sorry. I, I think I might have said that a little wrong. He said, I am proud to be an American, where at least I know I am free. And I will never forget the men who died who gave this right to me. And then the second stanza, I'm humbled to know I'm a Christian, where at least through Christ I am free. And, and I will never forget the man who died who gave this right to me. So, what is, is this a hindrance? Uh, so uh, what is maybe the foremost hindrance? And Matthew, um, I'm going to let you, you start this off here. Yeah, I, I think that's a really well-framed question. Um, <clears throat> in, my, in, my, in my journey, the things that, that really began to pop out to me coming from growing up in a church where every 4th of July we had our prominent singers sing that exact song in the mm -hmm. Sunday service and have our, you know, our servicemen stand up and take a bow in front of the congregation or come up on stage or whatever the case may be. The thing that really began to scandalize me um, 
in terms of my nationality, my my orientation towards the United States was how very political Jesus's ministry and and um, his whole all the prophecies and the reason that he were he was here was something that I had not appreciated for many many years in my youth, and the idea that you know I I, I feel like growing up reading the Bible in English, I read. Uh, I read words like the Lord Jesus Christ as like, as I would read my homework when I put Matthew Stephen Milioni, like that was his, just his proper name. And I didn't recognize how title oriented those things were that, that really what we should be reading is Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the same context in which Samuel goes and, and anoints the king is the same sense in which Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And, and then when we look at how he interacts with the people around him in Palestine, with the Roman occupation, the things that he's promising and doing, and then even more than that, then when you look at the early Christian response to the Christ and how they, they, turned phrases on their head you know like the expression caesar is lord becomes jesus is lord and that's not an accidental turn of phrase it's a very intentional thing that the first christians are doing to to lift up the name of jesus as their king as their political leader not just their religious leader but their political leader all of this conflict is is the subtext of everything that's happening in the New Testament in Jesus's ministry, and it was completely lost on me. I didn't know to look at Jesus as a a, a current political leader, and I, I think that confuses people sometimes, especially in the Anabaptist world, when you use those terms "political leader" because we're apolitical, right? But we're not really. the The thing is that Jesus, as the Christ, came to establish a national order it's just a national order that doesn't have geopolitical borders it's a national order that transcends time and place so it's an international like cross-border people of jesus across time to 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 claim jesus's right over his creation and that that kingdom is supposed to create new allegiances, new policies, new thoughts, new new everything. Yeah. So when we look at the nation of Jesus and we we examine like what's our immigration policy, what's our economic policy, what's our what's our diplomatic policy? How do we stand in the world as citizens of heaven like you read this morning and how that affects our whole being? Our interaction with each other, our interaction with the state, our interaction with our neighbors, our interaction with our enemies, our interaction with other nations, all of these things come, they're rooted in Jesus being the king, the present king of his people. And, and if we miss that, we miss this whole subtext of what Jesus is trying to do through his people. Amen. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for for um, taking us taking us back and, and looking at those important words and, and thoughts, um, Kevin, you, you got something to add here? Some perspective. This question of, of like, you know, is is there a hindrance um, if we are nationalists 
Uh, and if so, like what is maybe the foremost hindrance? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that line? Um, hey, Kevin, you, you um, if you could just unmute, you have your, your video off and I think you're, you're, uh, whatever you were on, they're kind of locked up on you. Well, I tell you what, um, that Kevin will hopefully be back here right shortly. So Matthew, let's, let's push a little farther than that. So, but isn't, you know, isn't America, you know, somehow built, um, on, on the values of the Bible and, and isn't, isn't it somehow a Christian nation, um, is, is the question that even, you know, even as, as kingdom Christian or even Anabaptist Christian, you really face that, that, that tension when you right. really talk about these things is like somehow, you know, America, wait a minute, is, is really good. And, you know, let's, let's embrace it. Let's, let's push it forward. I happened to, to bounce across, um, or just come across this book this week and I snagged it like, ah, I need, I need to check this book out a little closer, a Becca book, you know, American history, mm-hmm. right in the, right in the front, front page here, a national prayer with Thomas Jefferson, like, Come on, you know, isn't it? Well, at least, at least it's America, right? I mean, it's you can at least right. uh, in some way get behind that because it's quote Christian. Well, well, that probably gets at the heart of of the question you just asked previously, and that what's the what's the effect if we don't properly understand the kingship of Jesus or our national identity as Christians? What what effect does that produce in us? How, how does that hinder us? And and the answer is exactly what exactly this premise that 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 somehow we can identify the United States of America as a as a Christian enterprise. And you know I think that I think that uh, Brother David Brousseau has done some really good work in his his survey of American history from a kingdom lens in. Uh, in God We Don't Trust or his CD series, The Myth of a Christian America, mm-hmm. in looking at that premise. And I think that he's right in that the the people who founded America w- were, uh, in their own eyes, they were Christian. So like they were as Christian, I think, as they knew to be. Um, but but there's also the issue of looking at history through um, a critical lens. And what I mean by that is that the stories that I read in my history classes growing up were all the good things. Um, and, and I think that a lot of people are stuck in their fifth grade history class and haven't taken a broader approach at looking at the, through yeah. a real accurate lens of American history. And I, I, I have people fairly often lament the either the moral decay or the spiritual decay of the United States of America. And I'm always pressed to ask them, which decade should we return to to find the Christian virtue of America. And I'm not saying that there are not good things about America. There certainly are. I I mean, we could enumerate a lot of them. Um, I just had, my my wife just had $15,000 worth of dental coverage that that the state paid for. I have a million dollars worth of children that healthcare programs have taken care of. I have easy access to roads and infrastructure. My lights never go out. There's all kinds of benefits to living in America. That's not the question. But the question is, is this a Christian enterprise? Because the Romans had roads that were very efficient and effective. They had aqueducts and water and like, that's not the measure of Christianity. 
the measure of Christianity is the defined by Jesus's teachings. And if I want to look for America responding like Jesus taught his people to respond, in which decade do I look? Do I look in the drug-addled crazes and economic excesses of the 80s and 90s? Do I look at the the wildness and 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 depression of the 70s and the end of the Vietnam War and its atrocities that spread back into the 60s? Do I look at the 60s at the hippie generation and the sexual revolution? Do I look at the 50s and the the drunkenness, consumerism, and excess of that era? Do I go back to the 40s and the post-war era and the shell-shocked veterans and and the the bloodshed that spread all across Europe and the fallout of Versailles where the the world splits up the rest the the eastern western powers split up the rest of the world and have proxy wars for the next three decades like there's do we do we go back to the 20s do we go back to prohibition and gang warfare in most metro cities across america do we go back to the teens when labor unions are being mowed down with machine guns by government forces like where what do we go back maybe it's further right maybe it's the 18 maybe it's the 19th century with our civil war or maybe it's before that when we were building this country out of slavery in the backs and the blood of kidnapped persons stolen from their homeland i, I don't know where to look for an american ver- uh, a, 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 an american version of christianity i don't i don't see it that's not to say that there aren't good things about america but it doesn't this country has never and will never run you know the first thing that the that the european settlers did when they came to like the very first ships that came to american shores i live in new england and this history is everywhere the first thing they did was kidnap a native person and send him back to europe wow before the people are even off the boat like the exploratory trip kidnap some native person and send him back to Europe. Like that's just, it's just what this country has always done. And, and to miss the idea that Jesus is calling out, like we're the ecclesia, we're being called out of these structures into something that he's making where our sentiments, because why do people do this? Right. Why do they, why do they want to lift up the virtues of America? It's because there are things about us that come from God and we want justice and we want freedom. And we want, there's certain inborn virtues that everyone is looking for. And, and what my appeal to people always is, especially people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, is that you're selling it short. You're selling out Jesus's real vision for his people when you can settle for America being the version of what Jesus wanted to do in the world. It's incredibly myopic, at least, and willfully ignorant. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm really enjoying this discussion. Um, and looking forward to it. I was looking forward to it. And so that's great. I, I enjoyed hearing your, your talk there on your thoughts on America as a Christian nation. What about, so there's, there's still, there's, there's lots of folks that I've met who, who still look back at the good old days. And I think, so there is something that they're remembering. Maybe is it the morality. Um, so what about that? Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. I think what what I what I see when I look at when I look at America in the past, and let me say this too, like by way of of credibility, I'm not casually interested in America. Like I don't, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a Mennonite home or an Anabaptist home where 
where we looked at the world around us with a kind of uh, distanced dis- disinterest. I-, I grew up in a very political home. In fact, uh, I was a very political child, an anomaly in, in, in my age group and friend set. Like my earliest memories are the Dukakis-Reagan debates and the Iran-Contra hearings. Like I was transfixed as a little boy watching the Iran-Contra hearings. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a, in a very politically minded home. And so I've watched with, with great interest the, the American experiment. And, and as an observer of, of this nation and my culture, what I would say is that the, the idea of a bygone era of morality has a certain truth to it. Like, for instance, um, homosexuality was not nearly as, as uh, welcomed or or accepted within my parents' generation. Even things like divorce and remarriage um, were much less likely, uh, even in my own lifetime, that's changed dramatically. And so I think this is what people are hearkening to when they, when they, they lift up this bygone era of morality and want to return to it. But what I would say is that I, I look at this now, like I look at the, the, the dual nature of the American political spectrum. When we, when we look at the conservative right and the liberal left, what you find if you try to take an objective analysis is that there's something winsome about both of those ethos. Like the idea of conservatism that, you know, frugality and work ethic and independence and self, self-made ambition and hard work and like these virtues that are expressed by the conservative right are good things. But the compassion and the kindness and the desire to care for other people of the left is also a good thing. Now, both of them do what they want to do very poorly. And we see hypocrisy rampant through both of those parties. But but what's what motivates people to be engaged with those um, those those parties or those affiliations at the core of it is something good. And I think that there's a moral division that runs the same way along generational lines. So you have a right-left political spectrum. I think you have a, a, a more lateral distinction of morality. So our my parents' generation had this kind of like more family-styled ethic with the nuclear family and not embracing homosexuality and not um, and, and trying to preserve the nuclear family. And we recognize mm-hmm. the value of that. But today's morality is, is, is something like the left-right spectrum. It's something that, it's not that America is less moral than it used to be. It's that its moral compass has shifted towards a different focus. Now the focus is on acceptance, tolerance, um, well-being of people, the disadvantaged. And uh, I, there's a, I have a, a long rant of why I think that is, but I, I really do think that it's not that America is less moral, it's that its morality has shifted to a different focus. But I don't think that the, the historic focus was any more Christocentric than the current one is. Because, and I can, I can validate that, because we can look at what was happening in the world. Like, we can look at the Nixon era, we can look at the wars that have been fought, we can look at what happened under George Bush, the younger, 
And the wars that were prosecuted, the horrendous wars that were prosecuted in the Middle East in this kind of neo-crusade mentality of the, of the American right and the lies that were told to the American public in order to do it and the expense that was incurred and the blood that was shed. And so you can't tell me that, that America was moral when we're, when we're extorting the whole world for our own interests, even yeah. if we had nuclear families. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And, and to me, it, it, it helps me to clarify in my mind that like the difference between the good old days and the days we're living now. Right. And, and then that <clears throat> the way Jesus kingdom cuts across the different, the different national interests people have. Um, and like you say, the political parties that, that, that you, we see in America today and I, I've seen it, you know, we have, there's these two, I liked how you characterized the, the, the right and the left and of the political spectrum. There's, they do have different values that are both good, but, but they have separated them and they're like in opposition. Right. You could call those values truth and love maybe. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I see is beautiful in the third way, Jesus way is that they're brought together. Right. And, and so that's, yeah. Thank you. Great. There's there's another component to that, I think, in that um, in our circles, I, I am afraid that we're not well enough connected with people, our neighbors and our communities and especially young people. Um, I because of because of the way that my my life happened and the choices that I made, I, ha- I have a lot of friends who are not Christians um, and those are those are relationships that I value. And one of the things that I have come to appreciate is that in my circle um, of influence and relationships, um, the the atheists and the young people that I know are better people than a lot of the evangelicals I know. And you have to you have to get outside of your circle and experience people in a broader network than very closed circles in order to really appreciate what people like it's easy to take a fox news approach to the world and if you're within a very closed social circle and you don't have interactions outside of that network and you consume a lot of media that's designed to hype people up about boogeymen whether that's on the left media or the right media it creates it creates a paradigm, a view of the world that isn't really based on what's who's walking around in your neighborhood. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and when we when we are so weak and small in, in our vision of God and Jesus and His kingdom, and allow those narratives to to dictate how we see the world, that we've just we've just given up. We've we've sold. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've we've like someone has said, we've. Um, We've just given up our birthright for, for a pot of forage. Right. There. Um, and may, may, may we be convicted uh, about that. So, yeah, you, you touched on so many things I would love to uh, hear you um, talk about. So, but um, Kevin, Brother Kevin, are you, are you with us yet? Uh, he, I think he's having some computer issues there. Uh, looks like his camera is still off. So we'll, we'll just keep on rolling here, um, Matt and Matthew. And, sure. Uh, and keep keep uh, mining uh, what all is here. So I know that, um, yeah. So one of, one of the things you talked about how um, so we, we, you we need to keep kind of digging at, at maybe the history of the United States and kind of 
helping people see through this facade that somehow it's a Christian nation, um, helping people really as they're heading, you know, out to go celebrate that fireworks show tonight, you know, last night, right up my back deck here, I can see the Beaver Stadium and one of the best, you know, fireworks shows in the nation will happen here uh, right. Sunday night. Uh, last night, they were kicking off the occasional firework, you know, and kind of getting people hyped up. And then, I mean, as my boy, you know, right outside, or outside the door here, and we were out in the back deck, you know, checking it out. Um, but, and, and so, you know, these things pull us in, right? It's like, it's so live. It's right, right in front of us. Um, and how do we, yeah, how do we talk to ourselves about these things? How do we talk to our neighbors about these things? Uh, we're, you know, we're, we've based our talk here on this book, you know, in God, or the title of this talk, In God We Don't Trust by David Brousseau. Incredible resource to go back mm-hmm. and look at the founding of America and the revolution. We got tons of, of resources here uh, on, our, on our website. As well, on the website as well, on, on this particular um, talk of a place you can go and, and look at, you know, Matt, you talking about voting and some of those, um, you know, should we vote to debate that you had there in Boston. We have David Brousseau on talking uh, on Animat's perspectives. We have some of his talks in school publishing. We have, um, uh, we have, uh, yeah, Kevin Breckbill talking about our kingdom responsibilities. Um, so lot, lots of, lots of good stuff, but let's, let's just, Pressing that a little bit farther, maybe even tie us into, okay, so you, at the beginning of your talk here, you were tying us into this understanding of Jesus as king, right? More than just a personal right. spirit, but a king of, an, of a kingdom. How did the early church see that? Um, uh, did the early Anabaptists see that? Um, you know, was, yeah, and, and, and keep, keep helping us think about, helping us build a framework is, is what I'm shooting for here that we can process what's what's coming coming at us and uh right and maybe ties into history a little bit more let's go back what i'm trying to say is let's go back a little further how did the early christians relate to this is there anything you want to talk to us about that yeah there's a there's a passage by um i i feel like sometimes um two kingdoms like that expression is it 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 takes on either a contemporary or an anabaptist framework but okay. that's that's a pedigreed idea. Like that goes all the way back to, um, I, I th- I'm trying to remember who. I don't remember if it was Origen. I think Origen has a quote where he talks about we recognize within every place two uh, two structures. He, he uses that expression. Well, the duality uh, of of the early church, like the, they're looking at two ways. Like the Dua Via is a famous document in the early church where it's talking about this is one way and it goes to death. And this is one way it goes to life. It's, you know, Jesus is conditioning us to think about that, like this way or this way, like the two choices of life. And the early church picks up on that. And they and they nationalize that that notion that we see when we look at structures, when we look at the state uh, or our country or our, or our whatever our environment is, we see these two structures. And the one is the the nation that God's building, the other is the nation that we live in or that we're traveling through. And they talk about this this relationship. And he, here's the thing that I would say that that we should be mindful of is that that relationship is complicated. 
Like when I look at the relationship between the United States and Iran or the United States and Israel or the United States and Canada or the United States and Mexico, when we look at these international relationships, there are a lot of complicated lines to to navigate, you know, and those are based on the relative interests of those countries, you know, so America has uh, an interest in what happens in Mexico because it's a bordering neighbor, but they also have an interest in their border and they have an interest in trade and they have an interest in immigration and they have an, they have a lot of common interests and they have a lot of divided interests and and it's the purpose of diplomacy and international relations to navigate those things as you know ideally for win-win situations and we can do that as christians and and i think our people have been trying to since the beginning since the roman empire we've been trying to navigate the, those international interests in ways that are win-win propositions. So when we read the early apologies of the first Christians who are writing to the state saying, please quit killing us, we're not bad for society, they're, they're listing off their virtues and values for the people that they live around. Um, Tertullian says, we take, care of, we take care of your poor more than you all. Like the, they're doing, they're, they're, what they're saying is, we're not a threat to you, and we're good for you. Our prayers are, they stop wars. They intercede on behalf of the good of the, of the people that we live among. We take care of the poor. We help the sick. They're, they're listing out their credentials and why they're valuable for the places that they live in because the national interests are skeptical of them because they don't align with the domestic national interests. So whether that's you know, the critique that the early Christians were atheists because they didn't worship the pagan gods or they were um, cannibals because they had some secret rites in caves where they were eating the flesh and the blood of their Christ or they were incestuous because they called their wives sister or, or whatever the case may be, the world looking at them has a lot of reason to be skeptical of them. So they make a case. And and when we talk, so this bleeds in quite a bit to how we look at civic responsibility, like what as people who live in America, you know, when I talk about um, when I talk about our responsibility as Christians and and how we should abstain from things like voting and and governing the the places we live. The, the critique is that we're willing to receive the benefit without the work. That you know, right. we yeah. we get the 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 protection of the military without fighting in it. We get the the roads to drive on without legislating them. All these things are 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 uh, I think a valid critique. There's something that we as non-resistant Christians have to answer. There should be an answer to those things, and the answer is twofold. We're we participate in all these things. Like Jesus taught us very well. Uh, can, I, I'll be quite frank. If if Jesus hadn't told us to pay our taxes because of the way that America perpetrates wars and colonialism, I wouldn't pay taxes. I would be a tax protester. But Jesus made it very clear we're supposed to pay taxes. And he was talking about Rome, a, a colonial oppressive empire that was waging war across the whole known world. So that's a settled deal. Like I pay my taxes. We're not trying to get out of responsibility. We're not shirking any of our our obligations to the state in those regards. But it's more than that. It's not just that we pay the taxes for the roads so we feel okay driving on them. 
It's that we have something to offer the world around us. We're civilly responsible. We're making our communities and our neighborhoods better for having been here. We, you know, I, I, our guys over in East Boston last week, they wanted to do something as a church. They went around the neighborhood and picked up trash, like little things like that. Everything from little things like caring about our neighborhoods to caring about the people in our neighborhoods, to trying to work for the benefit of our, of, of, of our, the places where we live and the people with whom we live. These are civic responsibilities, not electing representatives to go to Washington DC to propagate their wars and their economic interests, but to care about the people with whom we live. This is the Christian civic responsibility. And it's how we answer the charge that we're benefactors without producers. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. Let, let me, let me say one more thing along those lines, because where you started was talking about, about, you know, the, the appeal of, of the national interest and something like the 4th of July and the barbecue and the flag waving and the fireworks is certainly designed to attract our attention. And there's a couple of questions to ask about that. The, the first one to me is, and, and sometimes people tell me, um, Matthew, you get a little carried away with the church history stuff. Like the Bible's enough. Why do we have to do all this? And one of the things that I often tell people is that every nation in the world teaches their children their national story. I don't care if you live in North Korea or America or Mexico or Peru or Uganda or where you live as a child. I don't care if you live in a remote tribal jungle. Right. You're going to learn the story of your identity and the story of your identity shapes who you are and how you think about the world. And, and it's sad to me that we have this kind of like implicit ignorance about who we are as a people, that there's often very little interest in knowing who we are and where we come from. And obviously we all come from Christ and his teaching, but the story didn't stop at the resurrection. There's a whole, there's 2000 years of history of our people where we've succeeded and where we failed that we should know about, because that's the point to learning history, right? Where did we as a people fail and where did we succeed? And to know that, to know those details is an, I don't know that it's necessary for our salvation, but it sure helps us figure out how to navigate the world around us. And so, so that's one thing that I always take away from the 4th of July is like the national interest should, um, it, it should provoke in us the national interest as well. Like Amen. if this is who the world around me is, who are we? Like they're making a clear display of who they are in the world. Like the 4th of July, Independence Day, thumbing our nose at the British, waving our flags and blowing off our fireworks is letting the world know who we are as a nation in the United States. Well, who are we as the people of God? What is our national identity? How do we express our patriotism, our love for our nation? Those are all important questions to ask. But the other thing is, I think a lot of people get swept away in that tide of nationalism, especially on this weekend, without much thought for what's happening. And one of the things that, as, a, as, as someone who's taken the responsibility to educate my children, I remember many years ago thinking about, there was my, my older children were very young, and it was a 4th of July weekend, 
and the fireworks started going off and it was it was it was during the uh afghan war in the heavy days of the afghan war and i remember thinking like it occurred to me what those sounds mean because those sounds weren't only happening in america they were happening in afghanistan that night too and what does it mean for when i looked at my family and my little children what does it mean if to hear those sounds if i'm an afghani father instead of an american father and the association between those sights and sounds is not accidental. And, and for me, brothers and sisters, that set the tone. Like I'm, I never look at 4th of July fireworks the same again. I always remember every time I see those things go off, the bombs bursting in air, I always remember what it's like to have been underneath the bombs of America's war machine. And that kind of empathy is the thing that we ought to use to our advantage in times like this. We ought to be teaching our children and our brothers and sisters, how do we empathize with what this celebration is about? Well, this celebration is about the end of America's enemies, our, our casting off of the British crown, our wars, our fightings, our preservation of the Union through the Civil War, our conquest throughout the world like that's what we're celebrating this weekend and i i don't want to put those motives on every person that sits at a firework display but we shouldn't be ignorant of what's really happening there there's enough to if we think about it we can understand what this sense of celebration is about it's not just that it's not just political freedom it's military freedom it's that we've forced our way into the world where we have what we want and namely economic power and prowess and independence from outside forces, all these things, that's what's being celebrated. And those aren't Christian values. Hmm. Yeah. That's really sobering, Matthew. Um, and I think that's, that does give a new, a new angle or a, a totally different angle on thinking about what the fireworks and that, that display means. So that, that makes me think of a question that we had coming in. Um, there's one that, that came in that I, I think would, would tie in really good here. And someone, someone asks this, consider three national holiday scenarios. Number one is a domestic national holiday being celebrated locally. Number two, that would be like the 4th of July, number one. For us, for, if you live in America, if you're an American citizen. Number two is a foreign national holiday being celebrated while we're visiting there. And that might be like, um, well, if you're in Canada, on Canada Day. Mm-hmm. Um, for and then number three is a foreign national holiday being celebrated here by local immigrants. Uh, maybe you have Mexicans in the United States celebrating what's their holiday? Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. Um, so should should there be any differences in our response or participation in any of these? I think that could lead us into some of these yeah these practicals too. And just thinking about that. What are your comments? It's a it's an interesting uh, thought experiment. I, I, I like the idea of it. Um, I think that I think that to properly understand that from a Christian perspective, they should all look the same, right? Like a a, a, a domestic national holiday for me as as an American looking at the Fourth of July should look like. Uh, traveling in Canada for Canada Day or 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 um, a Mexican celebration of Cinco de Mayo, and and it, there's something to be. I think there's something to appreciate about a culture through its national celebrations. Like to look at 
um, what people value and why, I think helps you understand a culture. And so there, there is certainly something very American about the 4th of July. And you can perceive that, like it, it, put yourself in the, in the, in the, in the shoes of a European traveler that happens to be here this weekend. Like, and, and I've, I've read testimonies of European travelers in America already. And there are things that are so very American that stand out and, and, you know, the, the size of things, the, 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 how, how big things are, the, the giant flag waving and the ubiquitous flag waving. These are things that are very, very American. They, they don't happen in other places. They're not common to humanity. So, so there are things that we can observe about these national celebrations that can tell you, they can tell you about that culture and about that people. And to observe it from that perspective, I, I don't, I don't think is necessarily wrong. Like, um, I think I've been in Uganda for some Ugandan celebrations. I was in Jerusalem for Jerusalem day one, one time, um, I was also almost attacked on Jerusalem Day in Jerusalem, so that, that taught me a lot about the culture there of celebration. Um, and and I think that we can be interested in the cultures of the places where we live, and those are expressed through national identity and national holiday. But there's a big difference between observing and and being in the center of it. Like it's one thing to watch someone else's celebration as it is to celebrate. And I think that's where my lines are drawn, at least, is that as an American, I don't feel like there's another idea that goes way back to my early Christianity. And, and it was the realization that, that, that the Bible says that Jesus will judge the nations. And that like struck me upon one occasion, like one of those revelationary epiphanies. And, and I remember reading that one time, and it, it really jarred me. And the jarring fact was, I don't want to stand on the American side of the judgment. Like when Jesus judges the nations, I, and that means the people, and I understand that there's a broad context for that. But I also think that these national entities have specific judgments, like Jesus elicits them. He talks about Tarsus, he talks about Nineveh, like there are national identities that exist in the framework of the eschaton. And I, I don't want to stand on the American side of the equation in the judgment of the nations. So how am I distinguishing my life to separate me from that judgment? How am I distinguishing the way that I live so that in the end of days, I don't, I don't end up in the pool of the Americans when Jesus judges the nations. And it's been a motivating factor for my life. Like I've, I want to find ways to distinguish myself as not American. Uh, my, my interest in communitarianism is in large part because of that motivation. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, to entrench in my life the American sensibility of possession, of community, of, of consumerism. Like I'm trying to find out ways that I can distinguish my life as different than American. And so that ties into how we look at these national celebrations. I, I really, I really appreciate that. And, and I think, you know, as, as we should be incredibly skeptical, Matthew, um, as Christians whose citizenship is in heaven and living in the most powerful in the world superpower. 
Right. We should be incredibly skeptical of that. Right. Uh, but sadly, we, we, we haven't been. Uh, there's so many people, who, myself, I mean, I, you know, just growing up and, and grappling with kind of this conservative right um, and how do we change the world, but yet we don't get involved in politics, but yet we do, you know, we're closet Republican, you know, all these things you kind of grapple with and you just kind of throw up your hands and you feel, you feel worthless at voting time. You're scared to tell your neighbor you don't vote. Um, right. Now I've discovered it's like our best kept secret. It's like, right. Right, this is how we relate. And it, it, it brings incredible opportunities to talk with the kingdom of God. Um, and, uh, and then so I, there's, and there's another question that I want to just want to keep digging into maybe some of the practical areas here. And this is a brother who, who writes, he said, I am an army vet. Uh, it was years ago, and this is a question that came to us in the last two days here. It was years ago in my youth before I came to have faith in Christ. Um, so he's saying, I'm an army vet. I was a vet before I was a Christian. Now I'm a Christian. And, but he goes on to say, he said, how are we to respond when, for instance, me being a vet, someone tells me happy Veterans Day. Um, and I think about just the, the shock I had here, uh, well, back at end of May is Memorial Day, right? Uh, you know, remembering the, 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 the soldiers, the ones who sacrificed, you know, their lives for the, for the nation. And seeing my an Anabaptist brother, um, who's actually a missionary in another country, put on his WhatsApp status, um, you know, these, these graphics that, that kind of pull you in, these, you know, fallen soldiers, and we need to respect them and um, uh, I even had a, a link to a YouTube video that was, you know, well done of this emotional music that all goes along with it. And um, these things that the, that the nation uses to, to pull us in and to show us this false narrative that somehow the most important thing we can do is, is be a soldier for it. This was an Anabaptist brother who, who's a missionary, right? Right. Putting this on his WhatsApp status. So how do we, how do we interface in you know, this question of, uh, of, incredible reality of like a, a gentleman who was a vet and who's, who's come to understand this is not the way of Jesus. How does he relate and how do we relate? Yeah. Yeah. I, it, one of the ways that I think about it anyhow, is that people are people and there are things that are built into us to, to connect with and associate with our own, like a, a sense of th- those, those, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, if you live in a, a remote jungle tribe, you still have a sense of self and people, like maybe especially have a sense of self and people. But those things are 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 human. Like we read about the tribalism of 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 Israel. Like, and it's not even just in Israel. It's like if you're of Dan, you're supposed to marry somebody from Dan. If you're from Benjamin, you're supposed to marry somebody from Benjamin. Like that's the ideal. Like these tribal associations are very deeply ingrained in who we are as people. And, and what, what states do and what nations do and what tribes do is all the same. And, and those things, they, there's an intrinsic appeal to want to associate with your own. And, and I think it's important that we recognize that we're asking a lot of people, like Jesus is asking a lot, like we're asking people to transcend those things. And there's a lot of great lengths that Jesus went to, to, to change that about humanity. It's one of the things that should be happening in our conversions is like 
like we see in the New Testament, all of these new, like revelatory ways to look at the world from the Christian experience. And my, so my relationship to my possessions is this acts two, acts four, like these, like these responses to the Holy ghost becoming active and in indwelling my life changes my relationship to my possession. It changes my relationship to my neighbor, but it also changes my relationship to my nation and to my status and to all it reworks, it reworks the framework of the world around me. And, and, and I, I recognize that that's a difficult thing. We're asking Christian people, Jesus is to transcend like the, the natural tie that you have to nation and place and nativity. And it's a big ask. It's also a big reward, like to be connected to the international body of Christ, to transcend these national struggles and difficulties and these passions that war, uh, all these things. We step above that in this new identification with the church of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, not, it's, it's not something that happens with your eyes, right? And so, so these appeals are crafted for the eye, like the narrative, the mythology, like the idea, like how many times have I heard on social media that the soldiers are fighting for my freedoms? And I'm always wondering how my freedoms ended up in an Afghani cave with the Taliban. I don't know. Uh, or why other people have freedoms and don't have to commit wars. Like, you know, th- these questions don't get asked because the intention isn't to be uh, that sentiment isn't designed to be a truth proposition. It's designed to be a kind of propaganda. It's designed to keep you within the narrative of who we are as a people. And to ask the Christian church to step out of that narrative means to begin to ask questions about the national mythology, like the story that gets built up around the facts of what's happened in history. And so, so all of that applies to what, how do we respond to Memorial Day, to Veterans Day? And I think where we can, we should be challenging those narratives, especially among people who call themselves Christians. Right. And it's not that America is stupid. Right. It's what nations do. Right. Every nation, as you said. It's like, um, and, and really, you know, and we hardly had time to plumb the depth of all these things, but I've heard you say before, and I use this all the time when I'm talking with people and help trying to help them to see how I look at the world. And that is that, you know, really governments are a preserving grace. Right. They preserve, you know, they, they keep, if someone shoots somebody, they, they get stuck in, in jail or they get shot or whatever. You have a whole continuum of how governments work in relation to, but that's what governments do. They preserve. But over here on this side, we're in the redeeming grace. We change from the inside out. That's our work. And that kind of leads us right into this next question that a brother asked here. He says this, um, he said, should Christians advocate for government policy changes on issues of justice, crack down on trafficking, prostitution, exploitation, and international pressure on human rights violators that have been beneficial, have been beneficial. In spite of being co- coercive, Christians can seek to change individuals on a grassroots level, but will this change society on a large scale? For example, we could bring the gospel to the South China Sea, but will this provide an impetus for bringing down the slavery abuses of its fishing industry? So should kingdom Christians ever try to change the social structures of our world is what this brother is getting at. Um, and so he's seeing, you know, maybe some, you know, this preserving grace side, you know, doing some good, which I think, 
you know, which pulls us in, it can, especially in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in America where there is a, a measure of, of honesty that's there, a measure of like trying to do good for humanity in this right. government. And so we see there's some good things that can happen, but how, you know, how, how do we interface with that? How should we look at that? What's, what do I tell my Iranian friend who's bringing me that to right. me and saying, you know, I see these things happening around me in Iran. It's, you know, terrible. But I see this good here. I'm going to get involved in American politics. Why don't you? I mean, you're an American citizen. Come on. Why are you not voting because of this good stuff? Like, how do we challenge that narrative? Yeah, uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. Um, and it's, I, I think it's the, it's the really complicated part of our interaction with the state. Because, you know, when I mentioned before these, like, international uh, relationships, like when you look at America and Mexico, and, and there are certain things, you know, there's all kinds of money, aid, military support that goes back and forth across that border. Um, I think the, the Mexican army was responsible for sending a lot of water to South Texas during the, during the flooding there. Like these kinds of collaborations are, are, are meaningful collaborations. They do good for people on both sides of the border. But, they're, but they're also, there's also a lot of potential tension at that place, too. And when I look at the Christian involvement with social structures, especially state-oriented structures, I, I carry with me an implicit recognition that we're on thin ice. Like the motivations that draw me together with the state, are they're there, but they're very thin. And it's easy to fall through in those places. And so I want to be careful. I want to be careful in a, at least a few ways. I want to be careful to maintain my allegiances in a proper alignment, that I'm, I'm actually representing Christ and not getting distracted with other motives. Because, I mean, Christ has some motives for the good of humanity. He, he, wants, to, he wants to liberate people. He doesn't want sex trafficking. He doesn't want people addicted to drugs. He doesn't want crime. Like, those are, those are the reason that these state powers exist. And I think a, it's sad to me that sometimes I feel like non-resistant people shy away from Romans 13. This is a, this is a place of power for the church's teaching. Romans 13 is where we derive a lot of our way of understanding our interaction as non-resistant kingdom people with the state powers. And, and, and it's not actually even, I mean, there are complicated things about that relationship, but the teaching itself is not that complicated in this way. Um, the, the, the passage of Romans 13 is written about Nero. Like that, that whatever you think about Romans 13, you have to make fit yeah. with the first century church and Nero. Yeah. And if you can figure out how to make sense of Romans 13 with Nero as the state and, and Paul and his church as the people that are being talked to, if you can figure out how that passage makes sense in that context, then you've figured out the passage. Like you've figured out how to navigate that from a non-resistant perspective with, with state powers. And what we learn there is that the design of state from the reason God ordains it is for good. It's for the preservation of order. Yeah. This, 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 um, this concept is laid out very well in Leonard Verduin's Anatomy of a Hybrid which is not yeah. the easiest of reads, but it's certainly worth its time and effort. 
um, this idea that God is using state power, whether it's Nero's or Pharaoh's or Kim Jong-un's or George Bush's or whoever's, that state power, all of them are designed to preserve order because you can't, you can't steal from the market in North Korea. You can't, you can't indiscriminately murder your neighbor in Moscow. Like the state, wherever it has been, has always done the same kinds of things, preserved a social order. Now there have been, there have been persecuted minorities that straddle underneath the line that are oppressed by state powers and all these things happen. But for the state, for this, for the country in which the state is over, the 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 incentive of state is to preserve an orderly society for the sake of taxation and continued existence and so there's a built-in it's kind of like capitalism there's a built-in incentive structure in state to 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 create and preserve order within any given society and that's been happening from time immemorial since since there have been cities and governments the those structures have been designed to create order within that society and that's good for the purposes of the church. We need orderly societies in order to do the work of the church, to call people into the new national identity of Christ and to pull people, ecclesia, to pull them out of that order and put them into Christ's. But if, if without those orders, and this is why, here's a really fascinating thing to me, looking from a historical perspective. The early church it has some very excoriating things to say about Roman power and oppression. Um, there's there's lots of places where the early church is critiquing Rome, but they also almost in the same breath have these really weird expressions of of ownership of this yes. this the society in which they live. In other words, Tertullian says in one place, because we recognize that God has ordained Caesar, Caesar is more our Caesar than yours, like. We, the church is saying, we recognize God has put these powers in place for his purposes and his reason. So we receive them in that way. This is how, this is how the church is supposed to straddle this line between being other, like so other that we completely alienate ourselves from the, the places in which we live or being too associated so that we miss the reason for our being here. The middle line is to recognize that God is setting up these ordered societies for us to do our work within. And that's the, that's the balance. That's the tightrope that the church is supposed to be walking between these powers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what what's so amazing is, is that we want to try to like set up a mechanism and we can kind of just let it run and right. live our lives as the church, but you can't. Right. What we're talking about is a, is a, is like a, a daily wrestling is my allegiance with King Jesus and his kingdom or with this world. And how does that interface and how do we not get distracted uh, by other things that, that, that woo us in and 4th of right. July is one of them. Um, you know, there's a, a quote, I, I, it's one of my favorite quotes, I'm forgetting the author, you might know it, but the idea of, you know, while a thousand men are slashing at the leaves of evil, there is one going to the root. And we see that, you know, we see Jesus, you know, not getting distracted by, by the politics and the, the ways of the, his own people uh, that we you know and, and, and pushing back against rural. We see him, his disciples being this whole cross section of people. Um, and we see right. Paul and we see the early church and, and the Anabaptists and up through, we just see this line of people saying, wait a minute, that's not how you change the world. 
right the only changing world and try to get people to, to, to wrestle with that and see that but it's like it's like this long-term view it's that really that spiritual eyesight mm-hmm. the cross the preaching of the cross is foolishness yeah i don't and i, I i'm afraid that i maybe didn't answer the question very well that you asked before and you're you're getting closer to the answer i think that how we view like what should be right in the world, like fixing what's wrong. Cause that is a Christian pursuit. Yes. Um, I think that I, there's a couple of things that, that I use to navigate those complicated waters. And one of them is that I think that Jesus has a mind for, for doing great things out of small places. So what I mean by that is that, within all of the potential things that Jesus could have done in order to establish his eternal ministry as the king of the kingdom of God, he focuses on a few people. And, and he, he, we can see in retrospect how the entire world is revolutionized by Jesus's interaction with a few people that he drew near to him. Mm-hmm. And that ought to be instructive for us as disciples, that we ought to learn to recalibrate our sense of success. Like, what does it mean to do something meaningful in the world does not mean to create giant multi-million dollar international agencies and whatever. If, they're, if we do, we do. But the real work of being a Christian has to do with has to do with the the people that are in front of me that I that that I have an impact on. So so if we run the scenarios, like I'm fascinated with the civil rights era and 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 the and the struggle of the civil rights movement, not least of which because it tries to employ and and specifically enumerates Christian principles for its way of acting and being. Um, I don't mean to say that that's a perfect representation of Christian principles, but that they were a, a root motive for people like Martin Luther King Jr. Sure. And 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 when you watch that have an effect in the world, it's very impressive. Like and and I think at least in 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 terms of his movement, genuine. Now, what's interesting is that very soon the object of that struggle becomes suffrage becomes voting because they recognize the key to changing the environment is the ability to legislate or to be involved in legislation. And so when you look at something like the freedom riders who are very like, I'm, I'm so impressed with the freedom riders who go, but their purpose, you know, the, the, the bus gets bombed at a certain point, people are killed. Like there's a real struggle that's happening with, with some beautiful uh, ambitions of those who are involved but the goal ultimately is to register people to vote. And I, I, I don't, it's not my people or my story. So I don't want to, I don't want to utilize it or tokenize it, but I, I, ha, I read an, an essay by an African-American who was critiquing what happens out of the civil rights movement because of the focus of suffrage. It's in a, it's in a series of essays called electing not to vote. If anybody's mm-hmm. interested and there's an African-American author who critiques the suffrage interests of the civil rights movement and says there were all kinds of things that were happening in local communities to change things like segregation, Jim Crow laws. All, all, there was a lot of there was a lot of dynamic things happening at the local level within the civil rights movement. And and when that movement shifts its focus onto voting, it becomes like a steam vent 
that stops the local movement because now the answer and the solution is to get elected officials to enact legislation. But we know in retrospect that the South isn't changed by, I mean, I don't want to say the South isn't changed, but there's a, there's a lot that still needs to be changed about the South, even after the federal voting rights bill is passed. And so so th- there's another thing that th- there's a similar thing that happens with um, changing the voting age to 18. So that happened during the Vietnam conflict. And and I actually have a, a, a podcast I'm recording this evening, uh, The Fourth Way, where we're going to talk about some of these things in more detail. But um, the the voting age, the senator that that proposes that legislation um, makes specific mention that this will give the youth a place to feel like they're being heard. It doesn't, it, and it does that. Like in, in no small way, it changes the protest movement that's happening against the war because the voting age has changed to 18, but it doesn't change the war. Like there, these things, the, these things can often, these distractions can often draw off the energy of real change and put them into the machinery of state. And that's something that we should always be careful with. Like I think about it all the time in the question of abortion, like what's more meaningful. Like if I'm going to invest my life, what's a more meaningful strategy to change the world about abortion is, is it to raise, let's say I could raise millions of dollars and handpick the next five senators from my location, from my state, would that be more meaningful to the issue of abortion or working three days a week with pregnant women who are in crisis pregnancies who need help? Which of those is a more dynamic strategy to change the world in regards to abortion? Well, I can tell you, my daughter is over in Uganda right now working for a ministry called His Image Ministries. And His Image Ministries is working in a country where abortion is illegal and common among students, especially women in crisis pregnancies, to to try to work with their lives. Because abortion isn't just a matter of of the death of an uh, of a pregnant uh, a child in the womb, abortion is an economic issue. It's a social issue. It's a family issue. There's all kinds of factors involved in why women do that. It's not natural for a woman to kill her child. Mm-hmm. So, what are the unnatural circumstances of life that are causing women to make those decisions? It's not the normal course of events. We have to figure out what's broken in the world that's causing women to do that. And you yes. can't do that through voting. Yes. And Uganda is a perfect example. It's illegal and common. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really good. And so I'm really sad that Kevin Breckbill is having tech issues and can't be on here this morning because one of his things he was going to really push on is this, I, this idea that he sees with, within you know him growing up and also within the conservative Baptist world is this, this incredible suspicion towards government. But yet, actually, we've, we've not been building a, a vision and a way to, to look at the world to say, how do we help change what is broken? And we kind of, you know, we've kind of sat back, kind of riding along with some of the good things that come, you know, as being an American citizen. We, but, you, we, but yet, we, and we we're kind of closet, you know, sadly, Republicans we're, we're somewhat political and behind the scenes, some actually very political because of maybe some of their eschatological beliefs and all that. Mm-hmm. We get along with it. And then along comes this perfect storm that happened in the last two years with 
the whole coronavirus and the election. And we've just seen people, conservative people, right? Like conservative, right? Getting bought right in and pushing narratives, especially the right, because we we, we were there anyhow. And now all of a sudden, you know, we can't get away from the narrative. And we're, and and also it's, it's, it's very practical. How do I respond today? And Kevin was really burdened about that. And, and, and his concern was how can we actually build and keep building this, this idea, this vision that we can change the world. Um, but it's, it's, it's gotta be Jesus way. Um, and right. I, I really appreciate what you're, what you're, what you're pushing at there is we have to understand that it's, it's actually pretty insignificant in ways. It's, it's mundane. It's kind of, but look at Jesus. How did, how did the creator of this world change the world? You know, and right. that was through his, his suffering and de- his teachings and life suffering. It's beautiful. Uh, right. So we asked, and, 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 and he put the impetus on his disciples go, to go out. And then he calls us, you know, in, in a Matthew, uh, which, you know, in a Matthew and beginning of Acts is like, go and be my witnesses. We can't abdicate our responsibility to someone else. And that's exactly what happens so quickly um, uh, in, in this in area polit- politics, you know, vote for me, I'll, I'll, I'll make everything right. And so I really appreciate you um, kind of pushing on that. So helping us see. Um, yeah. Let, let me say one more thing about that because I'm glad you brought it up. And I, I, um, I consider myself an outside observer of Anabaptism. Uh, it's never a place that I've really felt like is my home or that I, I aligned with comprehensively enough to own the label. But, but I've been very close to it, um, and, and some really important influences in my life have come from, from the Anabaptist world. And I, as an outside observer, I, was, I have been remarkably disappointed in how the last year and a half has gone. I, we, we talked about this in our call and I, I shared, I shared that I was stunned by some things that Kevin wasn't necessarily, I think he has more of an insider's view, but for an outside observer, if you had asked me five or 10 years ago, um, lay out a scenario where there's, there's a national health crisis and the government is trying to respond. How do you think that the Anabaptist world would respond? I would have said they would be the first to want to help their neighbors. They would be the first to be sacrificing themselves, their liberties, their, their, their possessions in order to build the good of their community and to help people and to be responsive to the needs that the government asked of them for the sake of public health. And what we found was exactly the opposite. And, and it was quite frankly, shocking to me to hear of outright rebellion and, and it's not shocking because the evangelical world had a component that did that. What's shocking about it from, again, my outsider observer's perspective is that there's a correlation between how pro-American a particular Anabaptist group is and how rebellious they were against the government standards in regards to public health crisis. And that's 
an anomaly. That's weird. You would expect that if someone was very pro-American, so you see these latent like conservative tendencies, these latent pro-America, these latent kind of like back to America's Christian roots kinds of ideas within Anabaptist communities. And you would expect that those people would have uh, uh, a sensitivity to the government, but it wasn't the case. The more Americana a particular Anabaptist group was, the more rebellious they were against government mandates and orders, you know, whether that was wearing masks or social distancing or suspending meetings, all these things, they, there was a correlation between those two ideas. And that's weird to me. What it, what it seems to indicate is that, um, that the, can I say it this way? The more American you are, the more rebellious you are. I, 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 when I think of myself, I use the term Christian anarchism and that that's an offensive term to some people, I think, but it's based on misunderstanding. Uh, and I'm not speaking for my church here. I'm just speaking for my own personal values. Christian anarchism means that I'm only recognizing that there's one source of power and authority in the whole world. And it's Jesus Christ. And that power and authority does not coerce or force or constrain people to do things against their will. That's the world that I live in. My order, the way that I order the world is that, that, to be consistent with my values, I cannot use force in the world to make people do things. Amen. And that's a Christian ethos for the world currently. That's the, that's the church's perspective. It ought to be. Yes. So whatever you call that, that's where that's coming from. But that's kind of a, like a, it's a very independent way of looking at the world. But f- given that independence, that, that like don't force anybody to do anything, my Christianity compelled me to care about my neighbor. So if I'm told I'm supposed to wear a mask in order to protect my neighbor, like, what do I care? Of course I'm going to do that. But this intrinsic, like rejection, like I'm not going to do that, that came pouring out of the Anabaptist world was scandalous and shocking to me. And to me, that shows that ought to be, we ought to be asking questions about that. And the question we ought to ask is, where is this coming from and what's its source? And I think that the source is being tied into the American worldview more than we realize on the outside. Yeah. Well, Matthew, I I really uh, appreciate you being willing to give that critique. Um, I think it's, I think it's a worthy one and really, um, you know, there was, I know uh, many Anabaptist brothers who, who carried that same burden and would say a lot of same words, Amen. but they were few. It, they, yeah. it, um, and I think it, I think we really need to do some soul searching to understand this, this, this complicated way of viewing the world. Like we've acknowledged that, like to be right. a kingdom Christian, to be uh, part of our citizenship is in heaven, yet living in a country, what does that look like? It is complicated. And we, and, I, and so I think it's, behooves us to have these conversations of how do we actually build a vision and a framework for looking at the world and i've said in the last couple number of years and especially the last year and a half like it's if it ever was important to have a a strong two kingdom framework to process what is coming at us it's now right and we have the perfect storm to the internet you know with all and social media and everybody's listen to their own little podcast being in their own little silo mm-hmm. and it's and i'm i'm sure i'm in my own silo in, in ways you know we all kind of we, we we need each other to round ourselves out and to speak and engage around these issues 
and not just shoot at each other. Right. Right. Um, right. Listen, and that's something, you know, I, yeah. So we can, we could go on for two hours here. I'm sure this morning, Matthew, and you know, we didn't have Kevin with us um, here to, to, to bring his thoughts. Um, so um, we, we were pretty optimistic to think that we could have uh, Matthew and Kevin on the same call. <laughs> and myself, uh, sorry, sorry for rambling uh, myself. Um, so Wendell, thank you for some of the questions you asked. Matthew, yes. thank you. Um, yes. Uh, you, have, you have any last words here, Wendell, before we just have Matt we wrap this up here? So Matthew, I like the way you brought in there at the end, just um, a full-fledged understanding of who Jesus is as king. And when we get that um, paradigm shift, uh, a different way of looking at what life is, that is really what is at the heart of this, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about staying separate from America as a, as a goal or something like that, but it's about because we're part of Jesus' kingdom that, has cha- that changes our whole outlook and our perspective on how we relate to the kingdoms that we live in. Right. And that is the heart of it. Um, like, like that passage you read, Bryant, our citizenship is in heaven. Not that that, that doesn't mean that because... I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but because I am a part of Christ's kingdom here and now, and that makes a huge difference in how I live and operate in this world. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Wendell, I'm going to have you just close with prayer here in a moment. So yeah, Matthew, again, thank you for coming on here and and sharing. I really appreciate what you shared here this morning and um, I appreciate your challenge and God bless you as you work hard at forward in the kingdom, right where you, right where you are. Um, do you have anything at last that you want to say here? Um, uh, I, I would just want to throw out one more. I, I, I thank you for the opportunity to be here, um, even at this early morning hour. Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, I, I am honored to be here. I, I'm, I'm grateful that that we could have this conversation. I want to I want to plug one more thing too. Uh, early in my journey, uh, Brother John D's God's Kingdom Now was really instrumental in helping shape, shape and frame some of my ways of thinking about mm. about our national identity. So if you if you haven't listened to that series by Brother John D, you should you should check it out. It's a hey, it's a great series of messages. Thank you, thank you, Matthew. We will try to put that um, on our resource page here with uh, on on Strength Strength so that'll go out later on today, and this recording will go out later on too. So. Uh, brothers and sisters forwarded on to the ones around you and, and let's let's talk about these things so amen thank you so one one thing i was going to say is um is uh, hey Ken, one second <laughs> my little son was in, in is i want to wrap it up with a quote from pilgrim marpeck uh, he was an early anabaptist writer he says this true christians never use their liberty to roll over the godly or the godless they use no kind of force but rather allow themselves to be rolled over. They suffer force and violence with patience and love until the end of the world. What a, what a powerful quote. And um, of course, Tertullian, uh, we have another quote here. This is right off the, the, the page for this talk. There's nothing more foreign to a Christian than public affairs, as in like, you know, there's earthly government politics where, it's subversive from the top down. And so may we follow Jesus and his ways uh, in, in changing the world. So thanks again, Matthew. And Wendell, close us in prayer, please.
Sure, thank you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege of gathering together in this way, and I just thank you for the thought-provoking and um, you know, challenging things we've heard. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to be citizens of your kingdom. Help us to have that that um, that focus, like we pray in, in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. I just pray you would use us in our lives to be agents of change, not by getting involved in political, the political affairs of this world, but by being um, citizens, servants, um, soldiers in Christ's kingdom and, and changing the world in his way. Thank you for that, that picture that we have of, of how God's kingdom, uh, Jesus says, God, the kingdom of God is like yeast. Yeah. It's like leaven in the world that goes and changes. And may we be that leaven today and this weekend, especially as our neighbors and as our maybe friends or family are celebrating uh, the liberty of the United States. Thank you for the um, citizenship, the identity, and the, the, um, the we could be um, the privilege it is to be part of Christ's kingdom. Yes. Go with us, and we want you to be honored and glorified. Amen. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, yeah, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, We're willing next Saturday morning. Um, a brother from Boston, actually, one of the Follow the Way churches there, Eric Hu, I believe his name is. He's a, a Chinese brother. Um, we'll be sharing about how his journey from being an atheist to a follower of Jesus. And I think you'll be really challenged by that, by that uh, conversation as well, or that testimony he'll be sharing. Uh, and also just, yeah, I, I'm sorry that we didn't get to all the questions. I know there was a bunch of questions that came in and we didn't get to all those. So I'm sorry with that uh, for the ones who submitted those. And uh, God bless you all and have a wonderful day. Grace and peace. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.